Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. Today I'm joined by Brett Dakin, author of American Daredevil, Comics, Communism, and the Battles of Lev Gleason. It's a fascinating book and a really intriguing hour-long conversation about one of the most maverick, interesting comic publishers of all time. But if you think you know Gleason just through his comics work, you don't know much about Gleason. There's a lot more behind the man's story. The story he has to tell is a lot about the history of the second half of the 20th century. Join me for a fascinating listen, one of my most enjoyable listens ever, and hope you will enjoy it as well. It starts right after this ad. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade, Brett Dakin, author of American Daredevil, Comics, Communism, and the Battles of Lev Gleason. Hi, Jason. It's great to meet you virtually, and thanks for having me on. Your book was a real pleasure for me. Um, as we were talking about earlier, uh, it was great to read the comics history and then see it as a gateway into the larger kind of tapestry of America post-World War II. Um, why don't we start by just talking about Lev Gleason he was, um, why comics fans would be interested in his life. Sure, absolutely. And I, I'll just say right off the bat that I did not grow up reading comics, and I am not a comics aficionado. So it's been such a great pleasure to meet folks like you who are experts in the field of comics history. And, and the, my connection to this story is through my family, because Lev Gleason was my great uncle. He died before I was born, so I never met him, but I grew up hearing stories about him from mm -hmm. my mom. And uh, so my way into the story was really through her memories of this larger-than-life character from Manhattan who would come to visit uh, her neighborhood uh, and sort of shower the kids uh, in the neighborhood, my mom and her friends, with gifts on what they call Uncle Lev's Day. And from my mom's perspective, he was really, he was a symbol of glamor and style. Uh, and it's through those stories that I kind of became interested in exploring his life. But to be honest, I didn't know really much at all about the truth of what happened to him and his connection to the history of comic books, but also the anti-fascist movement in the U.S. and the and the Red Scare um, and the obsession with communism. So he really battled uh, on both fronts: the comics front and the politics front. So that's really how I got into the story. And that gives the story kind of a richness of of theme. Um, he really had a complicated, interesting life. There's a I think a few mysteries that you tracked down as part of the book that have been family legends for many years. And uh, I think we can get into that in a bit. Um, can you start by talking about how he got into comics, what his comics were that were popular and um, how he saw the business as well as you could kind of reconstruct it? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Lev Gleason was very unique among the first publishers of comic books in New York. He got his start in comics when the media got its start in the 1930s in Manhattan. But unlike a lot of his peers, he grew up in New England. So he, he grew up in the suburbs of Boston. He was from 
a very well-to-do family. His father was a family doctor uh, in Newton, Massachusetts, and Lev Gleason went to Phillips Andover, and he went to Harvard. He dropped out of Harvard after a year and uh, joined up and fought in France during World War I with the U.S. Army, and he stuck around in Paris afterwards to study at the Sorbonne, uh, and that was where I would say he first got exposed to the types of political issues that would really engage him for his career. Of course, while he was there, Woodrow Wilson showed up in Paris and talked about the League of Nations, his proposal for what would later become the United Nations, but a form of an organization that would try to bring nations together and avoid the kind of horrible conflagration that uh, resulted in World War I. It failed and it resulted in World War II as well. But I think that that period in Paris when Uncle Lev was a really young man, was that period was, was really formative for him. So when he came back to the States, he moved back to Boston and he kind of struggled to figure out what to do for a while. He did a little bit of um, trying his hand at being a stockbroker. Then he got into magazines and really advertising. Um, and when he moved to New York in the early 30s, that was where he started out, when he was in advertising and business management uh, in publishing. And so he was really there at the outset when, along with his colleagues, they figured out a way to take what, of course, was nothing new, cartoons uh, in the Sunday paper, but repackage them in a way that could be a vehicle for advertising, um, and then ultimately something you could charge for, uh, a booklet of just cartoons, which later you know, became what we know of today as the comic book. So you know, to answer your question, Uncle Lev was really there at the, at the birth mm -hmm. of the comic book, and he, but as I say, he was very different from his, his contemporaries, people like Arthur Bernhardt and Harry Donenfeld, these folks who were in that world with whom Uncle Lev interacted. But Uncle Lev, his primary interest was not in comic books purely as a way to make money, although he did do very well. I think the political element is what sets him apart even when you think about his most popular uh, titles, which weren't political on the surface, but when you look at Daredevil, when you look at Captain Battle, uh, Boy Comics, Crime Buster, and then of course, Crime Does Not Pay, which became his most successful title by the end of the 1940s, and it really was the, the forerunner of a whole new genre of comic books, which would be true crime comics. When you look at all of those titles, there's an undercurrent of left-leaning, progressive, liberal politics that may not be apparent to your average kid reading the comics, but is there when you kind of look back on it today. He clearly saw the comics work as part of this mission he felt he was working under after, after the experience he had in France of 
kind of broadening people's horizons and also helping them to appreciate the struggles of the working class. And I think that's unique compared to any other comics publisher or really any other magazine publisher of the time, um, especially from the liberal side. There are quite a few people who are on the conservative side, as you talk about Henry Luce from Time and Life, uh, particularly. Um, but the more left-leaning approach was a lot rarer. That's right. And he, by the time he made it big in comics, let's say about early to mid-40s, the fact is that Lev Gleason had already published a lot of magazines and other publications that were not comic books, but were explicitly positioned as left-leaning alternatives to existing magazines. So for example, he published Friday Magazine, which was obviously a left-leaning version of life. He published Reader's Scope, which when you look at it, it looks just like Reader's Digest, except instead of all the articles being about how unions are terrible and the Soviet Union is evil, all the articles were about uh, the evils of segregation and uh, histories of the first all-black battalion in the Civil War. And, you know, so it was just a completely different uh, set of articles and content, but the format and the packaging were similar and were designed to reach the broadest audience possible. And Uncle Lev, he started out as an advertising man. So he always had that kind of business acumen and, his, and the, the impetus to sell uh, at top of mind. Mm -hmm. And he used that, as you say, to sell uh, a particular message, which was really the fight against fascism, both in Europe, but also in the United States, and leading up to America's entrance in World War II in 1941, his mission really was to encourage Americans to join the fight against fascism and the fight to protect American-style representative democracy. And what I thought was so interesting going back was his publications, the magazines, but also the comic books, focused a lot on the threat in the United States. Yeah. So the folks in the United States who actually supported Hitler, or at least were pretty neutral on Hitler and other fascist leaders, the folks in the United States who were dead set against the U.S. entering the war in Europe and then in the Pacific. These, for Uncle Lev and his community of activists, these were the same folks who were against labor, against civil rights, against women's rights. The same, very many of the issues that we're still confronting today were the issues that Lev and his uh, colleagues in publishing and outside in his social circles were preoccupied with in the 30s and 40s. That's a lot of what makes studying history so interesting is to 
be able to really put yourself in the position that, that he was experiencing in 1940, 41, and 42, especially, because so much of that era has been kind of rendered in this big picture of the greatest generation making the necessary sacrifices. But we don't have a, it's not part of popular culture to really appreciate all the struggle we went through as a country to get to that point. Um, you know, Lindbergh, of course, had the famous, uh, spoke at the famous meeting at Madison Square Garden where there were literally Nazi flags, what, 25 feet tall next to the stage where he spoke. Um, and that's all. That's right. And you remember his, his motto was America first. first yeah. And, you know, where have we heard that again recently? But it, it really is, uh, it was, was eye-opening for me uh, because, as you say, we, as Americans, it's such a big part of our identity, the fact that we intervened in World War II. We saved Europe from the fascist threat. And indeed, we did but it was not a foregone conclusion. Um, mm -hmm. And there, were, there was real reluctance, even on the part of FDR, who was a hero to Lev Gleason and, and would remain so throughout his life. He really revered Franklin Roosevelt, but even FDR was reluctant to even condemn the anti-Semitism, the horror of the regime in Germany um, until the U.S. got involved and fought back. Uh, and I think to tie it back to comic books, you, you have, of course, the seminal issue in July 1941, Daredevil Battles Hitler, in which Lev and his editorial team, Charlie Biro and others, put Hitler right on the cover. Uh, a photograph of his a head. photo, yeah. Yeah, not just an illustration, but an actual <laughs> photograph right on the cover and showed Daredevil, the, the superhero, uh, fighting against a real-life enemy, Hitler. And then there were many examples as I went through these comic books, which, again, I had never read. I did not grow up reading these comic books. And, and our family didn't have any. I mean, I, people are often amazed to learn this, but we did not have one single issue of these comic books. And we still don't, except I bought a few, you know, on eBay here and there, but there was did no you see any of his other? Did you see any of his other publications, like the newspaper, the, the Reader's Digest ripoff, and the other things that he published? Like, were those in the house? No, we had nothing. I now okay. have, I have... I sort of made it a mission to acquire a kind of a copy of each. Um, mm -hmm. And when I couldn't, I also, I, I was able to access them in archives, the New York Public Library, uh, Library of Congress, elsewhere. But, but in our family, we didn't have any of these things. So it was, it was uh, very eye-opening to me to read through paper form and online, because a lot of these comic books are now available online, right. which is so fabulous. Uh, but just to see how that fight against Hitler and the fight against Nazis, both in Europe, but also here at home, courses through a lot of these comics uh, throughout the 1940s. And I, one comes to mind, which is an incredible issue 
which is a, I think it's called, you know, the battle against the dark hearts in white, uh, not hoods, but they're clearly white hooded figures in the U.S. Um, who turn out to be fascists and, you know, Daredevil and the little wise guys, I think his sidekicks basically uh, uncover these enemies at home and, and, and fight them and beat them. But, you know, a clear reference to the Ku Klux Klan, yeah. uh, a clear reference to the forces in the United States that were hostile to uh, to all of the things that we uh, that we assume are part of the American way, as it was, as you say, um, as it was expressed through the Greatest Generation. All that said, though, he did uh, rejoin the military for World War II, served served the second tour after serving in the first tour, ser serving in World War One. He put his time as a true patriot. He really believed in, uh, in a, making a better America. Um, and, and really that infused everything he published, it seemed. But just this, this dream of creating a greater, better uh, country, excuse me. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and that's, you know, you the, mentioned- The level he... of patriotism he seemed to have was just so like inspiring. Yeah, he was, he was very dedicated to the, again, the American form of representative democracy, the experiment, the American experiment, despite all its flaws. You know, he was very, he spent a lot of time pointing out all of its flaws, um, but he, he felt it was the best uh, available option. And, and which is why it's so, it was so alarming to me to learn that after the war, he came under fire uh, because of his anti-fascist activities, largely because being anti-fascist became un-American uh, once the war was over and the Cold War began, so that any association with the Soviet Union or uh, the Communist Party or organizations that were named Communist Front groups by the US government, any association like that became suspect and, and Uncle Lev really came under fire as a result. Yeah, all that stuff with the House on American Activities Committee was terrifying. Um, I was really struck reading your book how quickly America turned from being anti-Nazi, anti-fascist, to being anti-communist. It really is just in a period of months, not even a year, that the entire society seems to flip on its head. And Lev goes from being someone who's relatively heroic, who's literally fighting for refugees, to seeing that, that striving for refugees as being this anti-American activity where he actually gets hauled in front of Congress and is convicted. Yeah, yeah he is actually convicted of yeah. un-American activities, air quotes. Yes. Um, which is just like everyone's nightmare, right? You, you're living your life being as patriotic as you possibly can be, uh, standing up for the underdog, 
helping people overseas who aren't able to help themselves in America. And all of that is seen somehow in the negative, not just a negative light, but in a criminal light. Um, That's right. Yeah, it really is. I, I totally agree with you. And, and the organization that you're referring to is this group that he served on the board of called the Joint Anti-Fascist Refugee Committee, which was essentially a group, a nonprofit formed here in the States to support refugees who were fleeing the civil war in Spain. Because in, remember in the, in the 30s, there was a fight in Spain between the folks who were in support of a democratic government, they were called the Republicans, uh, not our kind of Republicans, but Spanish Republicans. And on the other hand, you had Franco and his fascist forces and the group that Uncle Lev joined the board of and supported financially and raised money for and spoke on behalf of was essentially dedicated to helping Republican refugees uh, who, have, who were fleeing Spain uh, find a home, uh, get on their feet. And it, it, it was actually became a very, it became a bit of a cause celeb in New York City. They had fundraisers, they had celebrities like, you know, Pablo Picasso and Ernest Hemingway and Dashiell Hammett and Dorothy Parker and all these really incredible writers and artists, um, you know, Paul Robeson, the, the, all these folks supported this group. I mean, it, it was, it was kind of the equivalent of, of your, you know, kind of average left-leaning progressive nonprofit having fundraisers in New York today. Um, and, and, but the U.S. government, uh, the Justice Department, the FBI, and uh, Southern Democrats and Republicans in Congress on the House Un-American Activities Committee, they determined that this group, along with uh, many, many others, I mean, really just a whole host of groups, were communist front organizations, a threat to the U.S. government, just dedicated to taking down the U.S. government, I mean, in retrospect, it all seems a bit ridiculous, but wow, it was serious business. So as you say, they, they hauled this group in front of Congress. Uh, Lev had to testify of a whole chapter about how that went down. And you know, he refused, along with his fellow board members, to give up the names. They wanted names of all the donors, all the refugees that, they, that the group was helping. Uh, and the board refused to do that. Um, and so they were, they were all convicted of contempt of Congress. Now, Uncle Lev didn't suffer nearly what a lot of blacklisted uh, artists, writers, uh, and others in the US would suffer in the 1940s and 50s. Um, but it did have an impact on his career and I think on his on his life, on the trajectory of his life, having to go through that experience. Was all that part of the family legend about him? Did you know he had gone through any of these fails? No, it's so interesting. Growing up, the, the stories about Uncle Lev were stories of a, of a rapid rise and a sudden fall. Okay. Because he essentially ended with nothing. Um, 
not that he was destitute, um, but he, you know, he, he basically retired into obscurity and didn't uh, have much to his name, you know, other than a car and a house, really, a, a very modest house that he and his wife had, but nothing like the kind of fortune that he had accumulated in the, in the 40s uh, and early 50s. Yeah, but, he had accumulated this wonderful suburban existence at a time when a suburban existence alone was an incredible luxury. And that's right. Yeah. Went to I mean, town and had a beautiful house and many friends and was publishing a newspaper. Like he was act and very active in his community. It seemed like yeah. Once this uh, House on American Activities action happened against him, it just crashed his life in many ways. Yeah, it, it's. It's plus interesting. The, uh, plus the, the arrival of Frederick Wortham and Seduction of the Innocents was the other piece. Well, that's right. I was just going to say that because, you know, as I said at the outset, Lev Gleason was always fighting someone. I mean, that's why I called the book American Daredevil. In other words, a risk taker. He took a lot of risks that he didn't have to. And then comics, communism, and the battles of Lev Gleason. Of course, Daredevil is also a reference to the character Daredevil. Mm -hmm. Battles is a reference to the character Captain Battle. But really, the, the reason I chose that title is because Uncle Lev was always battling someone. And if it wasn't the House on American Activities Committee and the anti-communists, it was the anti-comics forces that came along in the early 1940s, but then really came along in the mid, the early to mid 50s. And, and that, I think that was the battle that he could not recover from. So when, back to your question about what I heard growing up, it was really about the attack on comic books and okay. the, the, uh, the, real, the crusade against comic books that uh, brought him down. Those were the stories that I would hear about from my mom, but nothing about the communism, the anti-fascism. And that was honestly all a surprise to my mom. Um, huh. she, was, she was quite uh, shocked to learn about all of that. Um, and it was really the comic books that she knew had been a problem for him. She didn't know any of the details, but certainly, again, that arc of a rapid rise, great success, and then just losing pretty much everything, it was, it was related to the, the comic books. But as you point out, in reality, he had also um, been battling for his, um, on the political side, for his reputation as as a patriotic American. Um, and that, that really, that took a toll, I think, um, on his, not, maybe not his business, but on his psyche and his will to, um, to keep going, honestly. Well, I think anyone as they get older grows weary of having to fight one battle after the next, just to become more kind of fully informed as yourself. Um, after a while, you just don't have the energy you might have had, you know, at, at, when you're coming back from France or before World War II, in his case, you know, and he had, he had really gone through a lot of the, the just, just everyday battles also. 
I like the little stories about how he published a newspaper and there was another newspaper in opposition to him, which was more conservative. And they're just always sniping at each other. And I'm sure if he's anything like my parents, my dad especially loved a good argument. Um, he probably liked it to a certain point and then said, oh God, I'm just so sick of this crap. I, it, I think that is probably true. And I, the whole saga of those two newspapers, I just found fascinating. Um, you know, he, he moved to Chappaqua, New York, which is a town in Westchester, a suburb of New York City. As you said before, very wealthy, uh, very comfortable. He had a chauffeur who would drive him back and forth to the city. Uh, there was a couple who worked in their home uh, as a cook and a butler. And, and so it was a very comfortable existence. And, and yet he dove right in to the local political scene and decided to found a newspaper as, again, a direct challenge to the existing conservative newspaper, just like he did with Life magazine and Reader's Digest. Um, he did with his newspaper called the Newcastle News. There was the Newcastle Tribune, a solidly conservative Republican paper in a town where there were only Republicans, really. I mean, there were no Democrats whatsoever when Uncle Lev showed up. But he decided to start this paper, very pro-New Deal, pro-FDR, and then pro-Truman. And uh, they really got into some knockdown, drag-out fights. And what I thought was so alarming to me, and to your point about fatigue, is that the other paper really, they, they, it, they followed his every move. I mean, yeah. they would write articles when he was in the hospital in New York. You know, I found one little article, Lev Gleason hospitalized at Mount Sinai. And I just thought, why would a newspaper report on that? I mean, they were, they were almost obsessed with, with his political activities. They would report on fundraisers he had attended. They would report on letters that he had written and um and 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 to circle back to the anti-communism stuff they were convinced that he was a communist that the communists were going to take over westchester county that the that he was a threat to the united states government and they even on a local level a town paper it was it was very serious stuff. And then you uncovered evidence that you may actually have been a communist, or at least very communist sympathizer, um, since he did a lot of work for, I think it was Soviet Union today? Russia today? Yeah. Well, one of the most extraordinary experiences I had in doing the research for the book was I had a conversation with a writer at the New York Daily News, Jay Nader, who has since passed away, but he was a, he was a columnist and a, a comics expert, really. And I don't even remember how I got connected to him. I think it was through another source. Um, but 
Jay and I had a very brief conversation uh, in which he said, oh yeah, let Gleason, I know all about him. And then at the end of the conversation, he said, does the name Alexander Lev mean anything to you? Very cryptic question. I mean, he, we quickly ended the conversation and it did not mean anything to me, but soon enough it would. And what I found out was that there was allegedly an alter ego, Alexander Lev, who was active in the Communist Party and communist circles in Manhattan in the early to mid 30s, uh, who held titles like the business manager of Soviet Russia today and would write advertising copy for this magazine, which was all about how great the Soviet Union was, including things about the Moscow Metro system and how uh, advanced it was. And when Uncle Lev came under fire a decade later, this connection was unearthed. And so no one could ever prove it, but the claim was that Alexander Lev and Lev Gleason were one and the same. And so I did my best to track it down and in the book is what I found. But it was a really interesting uh, journey for me to try and uncover the truth about this man's life who, to my great regret, I never had the opportunity to meet mm -hmm. uh, and who left behind a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of, of secrets that I think I resolved, but maybe not 100%. Yeah, that's why I was talking earlier about he is just us, a whole bunch of mysteries all bundled into one person. And it seems like the more you dig into him, the more you feel you have an understanding of his career and his life and his motivations, the more he kind of twists and turns under your eyes and becomes someone a little different than you expected, which I suppose makes, it was one of the pleasures of reading nonfiction versus fiction also, because um, his life was so unpredictable, <laughs> kind of like your life probably was and certainly like mine was, mine has been. Um, where you just, um, you never know what's going to come around the next corner. Um, I'm not sure if there's a question there as much as, did you feel that way also? Like you were um, just continually discovering surprises? Absolutely, yeah. I, I Especially since I didn't know what to expect going into it. I, I, I had a sense that there was something interesting there and I had grown up with these stories about him, which were always fascinating to me, especially as a kid, the idea of this, uh, this character kind of coming to town and uh, sweeping everyone off their feet certainly stuck with me. Um, and then this mystery about, well, why, so then what happened to him? And, and, and why, why didn't he leave anything behind? Why don't we have a single copy of any of his publications? And, you know, in the book, at the, in one of the, sort of in the back matter, I try to list, you know, every single title he ever published and, and all the different companies he formed to do so. And it, it's really a lot. Um, and yet he, he left 
none of that behind. And not only that, he didn't leave behind a diary or letters, correspondence. It was really a challenging project in that respect because it wasn't like I could go to the Lev Gleason papers in the University of Massachusetts or something. I mean, there was nothing. So I had to basically go to everything that was in the public record. Uh, and then I had to go to archives like the National Archives in Washington, DC, various other archives of organizations he was involved in here in New York City. And then ultimately I did file a Freedom of Information Act request uh, with the FBI. And lo and behold, they had about a 200 page file on, on Lev Gleason. And it was, I, again, I wasn't surprised that they would have something because at that, by that point, I had learned enough to know that, okay, this guy was probably on J. Edgar Hoover's radar, but the fact that they, they followed him for more than a decade and produced a file on him that was almost 200 pages long was definitely a shock to me. Uh, and reading through it was, was, was quite an experience um, to read through a file that our government produced on one of its own citizens and my relative uh, was, was a little bit chilling. Yeah, it's terrifying to know what the government was able to do, but then again, considering everything he was up against during the post-war years, you're right, it totally fits. It, it's not at all unexpected. Um, he was a controversial figure. Um, he really does come across as larger than life in some ways in the book, though. Certainly a, a, just this force of energy and enthusiasm and passion. Um, in some ways, that makes kind of his last few years not sad, but um, kind of interesting because he just essentially retires and becomes a real estate agent and um, just kind of throws all the, the stuff from his past into his back pocket and moves on with his life. Um, I almost feel like that's the most radical change he makes throughout his life. Absolutely. It was, and again, it's one of the frustrations of never having had the opportunity to speak with him because I can't just ask him, you know, why, why did you do that? Uh, I have to kind of piece it together and there's a little bit of conjecture in there, but I, I think it's essentially what you hinted at before, which is that after battling the anti-communist forces and after battling the anti-comic books forces, and remember, he was very prominent. He was the president of the Association of Comic Book Publishers. He was on the radio and on television debating folks like Dr. Wortham and Senator Kefauver, who led the investigation into comic books. After all of that, I think that he and his wife, Peggy, uh, who was instrumental to a lot of aspects of his life and career, I think together they decided, you know what, I just, this is not worth it anymore. Um, and he, he walked away from it all, which is quite incredible when you think of uh, the content of his comic books.
books, just a vast library of characters and stories and narratives um, created by this amazing team of writers and artists he was able to assemble. And, and I think on the comic side, that was his greatest talent. Maybe his genius was just knowing who to choose and giving them the freedom to create uh, and running his business in a way that, that uh, incentivized their uh, creations. Um, but the fact that he left all of that behind didn't even bother to try to protect that content. It all lapsed and went into the public domain where it is today, I think was primarily because he had just had enough of the fighting uh, and wanted a more comfortable, uh, calm existence. Well, I think in the post-Wortham era, a lot of comics publishers just basically shut down their shops and didn't think any of their material they had published in the past was worth anything. Um, you know, even even stuff like Captain Marvel, which had sold in the multi-millions of copies per month, um, was basically abandoned by Fawcett Public Publishing. And only the people who were nostalgic about it brought the character back into the public eye. Um, my guess, uh, that's the one part that makes perfect sense to me, is that Gleason just said, okay, I had this business, it went well for a while, people don't care about crime, does not pay comics anymore, I can't sell them with a comics code on the cover anyway, because I can't show machine guns, and I can't show women getting hurt, and I can't show people hating the police, because they're all against the comics code, so therefore, I just, there's, there's no point in even trying this anymore, and just said, I'm, I'm done, and just move like anyone else would move on from their business. Um, there's just no sense that any of that was worth anything at the time. And like you were saying too, he probably was so beaten down by the congressional hearings. Um, you know, he was so angry at William M. Gaines for really just, just doing terrible in front of the, the Senate committee um, that he was obviously just like, he felt like probably there was some moral cowardice with his part, with his fellow publishers as well. Um, there's an interesting little paradox where he's the only comics publisher who had his name out there on the covers, you know, specifically himself endorsing everything. No one else did that. Um, you know, uh, any of the four or five major publishers at the time, you know, you had to be a real, you had to real, really work hard to know who the publishers were of those companies. You know, it's not like anyone knew who the publisher was of, of Superman comics or, um, Timely Comics. I mean, at that time, Stan Lee's name wasn't in front of anything, but Lev Glee, there were always Lev Gleason publications, and his name Every was Everyone. Yeah, every single one is, is, is right there under the title, whether it was Crime Does Not Pay or Daredevil or, or Boy Meets Girl. You know, he had a bunch of romance-style mm -hmm. comic books. It was, it was always Lev Gleason publications, Lev Gleason publisher, and then Charlie Biro and Bob Wood, you know, those names were on every one. And that I think said, you know, this says a couple of things. One was he was unafraid to be the face of his uh, content and to stand behind it, even when it was extremely controversial and, and accused of being the reason why kids were uh, becoming delinquents. And it also shows that he was willing to elevate his, his team, you know, to put Charlie Byron and Bob Wood right there on the cover. Um, 
because he knew that they were they were the guy they were the guys with the ideas you know they were the guys with the with the talent for writing and creating incredible artwork and getting the right uh, folks in the room to provide the, the, the just this endless need for content that these publications drove. Um, but yeah, he, even, he, was, he was unique in that sense. He even gave him a share of the business, which yeah. is completely unique, completely unique. I mean, literally from, from the dawn of comics to about the late 1970s, no one else did that, as far as I know. Yeah. He was determined to, to treat people fairly and to, again, I think it was not just uh, selfless. He also wanted to create incentives to get the best work from people. And, and, and I, you know, there was the, the profit sharing aspect. And there was also just the, you know, I was able to speak to, to just a few artists who, who were still alive when I was doing the research. They've since passed away, but they, you know, they, they had very vague memories and did not, maybe never met Uncle Lev, but his, mm -hmm. but he loomed large for them as a, as a magnanimous figure and someone who treated his employees and contractors well, and, uh, and, and they appreciated that. And I think that, in the end, is as good a legacy as anyone could ask for. Is um, he's a man who crusaded for what he believed in, but also treated his his the people who work for him almost like family, at least as well as he could have treated them. Yeah, he was really, you know, another on that note. I I just wanted to mention that I was able to speak to the son of Uncle Lev's assistant in the office. So she was uh, basically his secretary, but a lot more than that, basically running the office. Um, mm -hmm. And it was just remarkable to hear this man, her son, talk about the way that his mother talked about Uncle Lev, which was as someone who, like you said, was like family and was you know, deeply concerned about her family and her welfare. And this was a woman who was Jewish and whose family had been decimated by the Holocaust. And, you know, Uncle Lev was really, you know, he, he would have taken that very seriously and treated her especially well because of that history. And, and that, that definitely, trickle down to her son who is alive today and he never met Uncle Lev. He was way too young, but he remembers him that way as a result. So in the end, um, do you feel like you, I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, do you feel like you solved the mysteries or just created maybe a little more sense of closure about the life of this very complicated man? I think I solved most of the mysteries, but definitely not all. There are some open questions that may never be resolved uh, around his political activities, also around what exactly happened when Lev Gleason publications shut down. Uh, and 
the broad contours of his life story are now clear. Um, and some of the misinformation about him, including what happened to him after Lev Gleason publication shut down, uh, those have been resolved as a result of my research. Uh, but you know, the thing is, everyone's life contains mysteries. And there are maybe more in Lev Gleason's life than your average man or a woman, but everyone has them. And the, only the person themselves can answer some of these questions. And, and isn't that sort of the, the frustration, but also the beauty of, of, of human life is that we can never fully know someone. Yeah, yeah. That's been on my mind a lot. Actually, my sister and I have been talking about that. My dad passed away 15 years ago. Our dad passed away about 15 years ago. And we're continually running across things that we've said, oh, I wish we could have talked to dad about that. Wish we'd understand what, what happened to make him this decision. Um, yeah, you're right. And I think that's part of the, the amazing aspects of being just, just being someone who's alive and having a complicated life. Um, you worked on this book for nearly 20 years. I saw you did interviews as early as 2003 for it. Um, this must have been a tremendous journey for you. Um, how does it feel to finally have this book out and in people's hands? It feels very satisfying. It was a long, long journey. Now, mind you, I wasn't working on it consistently yeah. every day of the last 20 years. <laughs> but, um, you know, publishing a book is... is is kind of an absurd thing. I mean, you know uh, this as well. It, it's it's a it's long. It's uncertain. In my case, I I started doing the research when I was still in law school, and frankly, was looking for an excuse not to study for my final <laughs> exams. Um, and you know, I tried to get interest from publishers. At all those years ago, there wasn't much. And then I kind of put it aside for a while. And actually, my publisher, Chapter House, contacted me because they saw something that I had written about Uncle Lev and they knew I was working on this book. And so they actually approached me and said, you know, we're really interested in Lev Gleason, uh, in his characters, in, in the stories, in his comic books and we would love to publish his story so that uh, our readers can understand the truth behind this guy who created so many incredible comic books that we're, we're really rediscovering in a sense today. Uh, and so it was, it was as a result of their approaching me that I kind of said, all right, if you're interested, let's do it. And so then I really re-engaged rewrote it essentially, finished it up, and then, uh, and then here we are. It's being published, uh, officially released next week, August 18th, 2020. Great, this pod will be up just before that. Excellent. Probably on Thursday, so uh, hopefully people will, will uh, find it and listen to it and be picking it up at all the places you can buy books like this. Last question for you, maybe an odd question. I know you've done a lot of writing for magazines like uh, Foreign Affairs and, uh, and International Herald Tribune and things like that. 
Did you find any resonance, and of course you lived in uh, Southeast Asia for many years, did you find any resonance of Lev's life in your own kind of intellectual journey you've had to get to you, this, you to this point um, in your life and career? Yeah, absolutely. I think I'll answer that in two ways. One would be my own personal journey, which includes several intersections with communism, as it turns out. And, you know, one is that I actually spent a summer in the Soviet Union when I was in the ninth grade. Um, this is very, totally random, really, looking back oh. on it. But this was the last year of the Soviet Union. Uh, I was selected as one of a couple of American students to spend the summer at a pioneer youth camp Wow. in Odessa, cool. which is now the Ukraine, but then was still part of the Soviet Union. And so I spent a summer, and frankly, it wasn't all that exciting. It was a summer camp on the sea, and we did a lot of summer camp type activities, and we interacted with not so many Russian kids, but mostly kids from places like Poland and Romania and the Czech Republic, the Eastern Bloc, essentially, uh, I came back home, and the next month, Boris Yeltsin stood on the tank in front of the Kremlin, and the Soviet Union fell. So, so I was there at the very end. So again, that was when I was in ninth grade. I didn't know anything about Uncle Lev's story or any of these uh, overtones of communism or the Soviet Union at the time. That is one connection that it turns out that we yeah. have. Uh, and then, as you say, I lived and worked in Laos, which is one of the few remaining communist countries in the world, uh, along with Vietnam. It uh, became a communist country after the U.S. lost the war in 1975, and it remains a communist country today governed by a single uh, political party. And I wrote my first book about my experience living and working in, in Laos. And that was an explicit choice I made to live someplace new uh, and live in a communist country. Because what does it even mean to be a communist country these days? Uh, and so those are two sort of explicit ways in which Uncle Lev's life had, it turns out, resonates in mine, unbeknownst to me. Um, and then the other way to answer that question is, I think that his story has great resonance for what we're facing in the United States today and the, and the challenges that, that we face uh, in terms of our current government and, um, and you know the, the very things that he was fighting for are exactly the same things that I am fighting for today in my very small way, but as a, as a volunteer and a, as a politically engaged person, um, it's really not that different. When, we, when I was you know, out on the streets here in New York marching for the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, when I write about the echoes of fascism in some of the actions of the current administration, I do think 
now a lot about Uncle Lev and what he would say. Um, and when you look back at some of the things he did say, they really could apply to the US in 2020 pretty word for word. Uh, because we, we do face a, some of the same threats we did back then. And some of those undercurrents in American life that we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, they're still here. Uh, and indeed, they have been allowed to speak in a louder voice than we have recently experienced through new social media cha uh, channels that didn't exist when Uncle Lev was alive, but mm -hmm. you know, Twitter, Reddit, uh, Facebook, and others have allowed these voices that have always been in our society to be amplified. And I think that Uncle Lev would be, would be very disturbed by what we've seen over the past four years. That's the saddest part of the book, I think, is that the same forces that he was dealing with 75 years ago are still present in our society today. It's the tragedy of, of America in many ways. The biggest disappointment in my lifetime, especially in the post-Obama period, we really, it, for, for a brief moment, it felt like we had moved beyond the, the horrors that parents' generation lived through. And it turns out it, it was always there festering underneath like a cancer. That's right. But I think overall, the trajectory is positive and it's going to be a challenge. But Uncle Lev did feel hopeful when he died in 1971 and he expressed his hope for the future, seeing the marchers against the war in Vietnam and for civil rights. You know, he was not on out there on the streets with them, but he was aware of them and he wrote about his uh, excitement about that. And I kind of feel the same way today that we do have a bright future ahead, but it's going to be a real struggle to get there. Yeah, I, I think so too. The, 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 uh, reaction to the George Floyd killing, such a galvanizing moment. And it was just, there's no way to spin it, to, to think of it as anything other than the, the horrible crime against humanity it actually was. I think it's just one of those moments that just brings everyone together where you have to see the reality for what it is. And um, I'd like to think we're able to move on from there. Um, my, my, I don't want to, uh, this is a comics podcast. I don't sure I want to talk politics for the next hour. Um, but um, yeah, this, one of the really interesting things about this book is it brought, the, brought history um, and these events from uh, for decades ago into a very modern kind of perspective. And I think I hear a lot of the passion you bring to the modern day, um, so that your discussion of the history in the book, and that's a lot of why I found it so compelling. Great, I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you for, thank you for reading the book and, and inviting me on to, to talk about it. Thank you, Brad, it's been my pleasure. Oh, thank you.